2006, January 26, Lecture 16, The Evolution of Low-Mass Stars. Start the recording here, and we're ready to go. Actually, I find, I've been hearing from people about the podcast. Some of you actually like them. In fact, one person found a, an error I made yesterday by accidentally posting the same lecture twice. I fixed that this morning. Um, I've even got fan mail from somebody outside the university. He's a retired fellow who tripped across the recordings and, in fact, has been taking this course along with us using the podcast. <laughs> cool. I, if you can hear me, welcome. Um, today we're going to continue our story of stellar structure and evolution. Yesterday we learned about the main sequence. The main sequence is when a star is in hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium and when it is getting all of its energy by converting hydrogen into helium through four-proton fusion, either through proton-proton chain in lower mass main sequence stars or through the complex CNO bicycle, which occurs in the upper mass stars. And we saw how the differences of the energy generation mechanism in play naturally divided the main sequence into two groups, an upper main sequence and a lower main sequence. And there were differences in structure, internal structure in those stars, in terms of convective cores and radiative envelopes in the case of high-mass stars and radiative cores and convective envelopes in the case of the low-mass stars and other differences along the way. We also saw how the main sequence lifetime was strongly dependent on mass vis-a-vis -vis this morning's question. So now we want to ask, we said, okay, a main sequence star, to be a main sequence star, to be part of the main sequence club on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram must be in hydrostatic equilibrium, pressure balancing gravity must be in thermal equilibrium. Its energy generation must be exactly the amount needed to balance its luminosity by way of energy transport. And third, that its energy generation must be entirely from hydrogen fusion into helium. Relax any three of these requirements and it must leave the main sequence. Its internal structure must change in such a way that its temperature and luminosity will move it to a different place on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Internal changes have external consequences. So the question we're going to ask today is, if what are the ones things that are going to change? Well, one of them, obviously, is the main sequence lifetime is how long you can burn hydrogen. What happens when the core hydrogen runs out? And that's what today's story is going to be. And we're going to tell the tale today for low-mass stars because low-mass and high-mass stars differ in what happens when the tank gets to empty. So the key ideas today is we're going to define what I mean by low-mass star. It turns out the division is not the 1.2 solar masses we saw yesterday. It turns out to be about four solar masses. And I'll say about because, in fact, there's a lot of nuance here, which I'm going to sort of gloss over. We really don't know exactly where this line is. It could be as low as 3.5 or as high as 5 solar masses in some circumstances. If we have a star below four solar masses, which includes our sun, by the way, these are going to be the approximate stages of evolution that we expect. First of all, we're going to start where we left off yesterday on the main sequence in hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, burning hydrogen into helium. When it runs out of hydrogen, it will become a red giant star, and we'll see how it goes through that process. From a red giant star, it will become a horizontal branch star, then an asymptotic giant branch star, and then in a final phase, at the upper end of the mass limit, probably above about 1 to 1.1 solar masses, it will become a planetary nebula phase, but all of them will end as a white dwarf. So we're going to show a long series of, of, of stuff today, and what the stages of evolution are, and why each of these phases come into play. Now remember I said that the main sequence phase, the energy source is hydrogen fusion in the core. This leads to a question, what happens to the helium? 
We sort of ignored the helium a little bit, although yesterday we saw one of the consequences of hydrogen fusion is as you convert some of your hydrogen into helium, you lower the um, number of particles per cubic centimeter in the core because you've converted four particles into one through the fusion process. And as a consequence, the pressure and the temperature in the core have to go up to maintain hydrostatic equilibrium. And a consequence of that is the main sequence star gets slowly brighter with age. But we haven't said what happens to that helium. What does the helium do? Well, the answer is not a whole lot. And the reason why it doesn't do a whole lot is it's still too cool for helium fusion to ignite. We can always take a light element and fuse it into a heavy element up to a limit. We're going to see what that limit is tomorrow. So in principle, I could, gaining energy by taking four hydrogens and making helium, I could in principle get energy out by taking two heliums and forming a beryllium, or taking a beryllium and a helium and forming a carbon, because the mass of the, of the resulting product is less than the mass of the input, helium. So I can derive energy through E equals mc squared. But to do that, I need to have a much higher temperature than occurs in the sides, the cores of main sequence stars. So helium at this point is inert. It's an ash. And all it does is it just collects in the core, just like ashes collect in a fireplace as you burn the wood. The ashes themselves is not hot enough to burn that ash into something else. It just simply collects there as a waste product and builds up slowly but surely greater and greater quantities displacing the hydrogen in the core. Now it does this for the time of what's called the main sequence lifetime. This is approximately 10 billion years for one solar mass star like the sun. It can range up to as much as 10 trillion years for a one-tenth solar mass star like a red dwarf. So for stars less than about four times the mass of the sun, the process we're going to describe today is going to roughly occur after about a billion years at the high mass end to way, way in the future, trillions of years later for the low mass end. But the basic steps are roughly the same. What happens when the end of the main sequence lifetime is reached? We define the end of the main sequence lifetime as hydrogen exhaustion. Now the star is still hydrogen and helium. All the fusion, remember, is going on in the core. It's only that inner 10% or so that actually engages in fusion. Outside that inner 10%, it's just too cool. You simply don't have enough temperature for fusion to occur. You're slowly but surely turning hydrogen into helium. That helium builds up as a kind of ash, and it collects in the bottom. It just sinks right to the bottom of the core in these stars. As the helium core builds up, eventually you displace the hydrogen and you run out of hydrogen in the central core. The core begins to have an appreciable self-gravity. It becomes big enough that it actually has gravity pressing in in addition to its external, the pressure it's pushing out with because it's hot. But because the helium itself is too cool to fuse, it can't get the extra bit of energy it is to make the pressure exactly balance gravity. It always loses by just a little bit. Gravity wins, and the helium core begins to collapse under its own weight. As it collapses, it compresses. As it compresses, it heats up. We've heard this story before. The hydrogen burning zone, because of the heating, gets shoved out into a shell. The compression of the core beneath heats things up. That allows a region just outside the collapsing helium core to be above 10 million degrees Kelvin. And that's hot enough for fusion to occur. But now instead of fusion occurring, hydrogen fusion occurring throughout the core, it now gets shouldered out into a shell. If you will, think of the, the interior of a sun as like a fireplace. When you start out fresh, just putting in the first wood and burning it, you can put the wood anywhere you want to. 
But as the ashes build up, since you have no way to pull the ashes out in a star, as you put more and more wood into the fireplace, you're putting it on top of the ashes of the previous wood. If you don't clean out the fireplace, eventually there's no place to put the wood except right at the top of the ash pile, even though before you could have been burning throughout the firebox of the fireplace. Same is true of stars. As you build up helium, it slowly displaces material from the core. As the helium core collapses, it heats. As it heats up, it heats its surroundings a bit as well, the immediate surface just outside the core. Remembering that hydrogen fusion is temperature sensitive. This means that as the heating from the core collapse goes on, you generate even more energy through this process. Well, now we've got a problem. Is even though we're still getting energy from hydrogen fusion, I'm now making more energy than I could possibly create or possibly transport to the surface and radiate away. So two things have happened at hydrogen core exhaustion. One is I've lost hydrostatic equilibrium because the helium core is beginning to collapse. The pressure in the helium core is no longer enough to hold off gravity, and so the core loses hydrostatic equilibrium. But now, as a consequence of the compressional heating and the hydrogen being shoved into a shell, I'm now making more energy than I can get rid of by starlight shining. And so I've actually lost thermal equilibrium as well. So when the star leaves the main sequence, it now loses on all three counts. Hydrogen core exhaustion should be enough to take it off the main sequence, but that hydrogen core exhaustion leads to a loss, a temporary loss of hydrostatic equilibrium and a loss of thermal equilibrium. I'm now making more energy than I can possibly make. Because I'm making more energy than the star can radiate away, that energy's got to do something. And what it does is it turns into work. It turns into pressure, and it starts pushing against the envelope as an additional source of pressure. So I'm out of hydrostatic and thermal balance. What happens is the core collapses, and the envelope expands because the extra energy goes into pushing the envelope out. It goes into making pressure to overcome gravity. So hydrostatic balance can be broken in two ways. I can either have too little pressure and gravity wins, or I can have too much pressure and pressure wins. The interesting thing in a red giant star is both happen. You have too little pressure in the core, but too much pressure in the envelope. So the core collapses and the envelope swells up. As the star swells up, its surface area goes up, which means its luminosity goes up as the radius squared. But it turns out. It goes up fast enough that it's to meet its luminosity needs. It actually cools off a bit, and as it cools, Wien law tells me it gets redder. So the star will evolve in a way such that it gets physically larger and therefore brighter, but it gets redder because the outsides are getting cool as it expands. It becomes a red giant. Now we know why there are red giant stars in the upper right-hand corner of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. These used to be main sequence stars, but they are main sequence stars that ran out of hydrogen and now have a collapsing helium core surrounded by a hydrogen burning shell. If I slice one of these stars in part in half, this is more or less what I would see. This is not to scale; I've just made this so it's illustrative. I end up with a cool extended envelope, which is getting bigger and fatter because extra energy is being pumped into it. It can't radiate away that energy fast enough, and so part of it goes into pressure to make it swell. All of its energy needs are coming primarily from the hydrogen burning shell, fusion energy, plus a little bit in the collapsing inert helium core from Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism from compressional heating. So here's a double energy source: Kelvin-Helmholtz in the core, nuclear fusion in the shell. 
And the combination of those pushes the star out of thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium, and it swells up into a red giant. Now, what it does on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram is the star starts out on the main sequence down here. We're dealing with like a one solar mass star. When hydrogen core exhaustion occurs, its subsequent evolution is going to look like this. It's going to get slightly brighter as it moves away from the main sequence, and then suddenly move, swell up very rapidly here, ch losing temperature, and then eventually the inside of the star is going to change. It's going to become fully convective, and it begins to evolve vertically on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram at nearly constant temperature of about 3,000 degrees Kelvin. But as it swells up, since the temperature isn't changing, its luminosity goes up as a consequence of getting bigger, bigger surface area. It tries its best to radiate away the extra energy that's coming from its increasingly hotter compressing core. But it just can't do it, and extra energy is causing the star to just bloat and swell up. And it gets into this part of the, the HR diagram. It gets into what we call the red giant branch. So this is what we have happening when a star begins to leave the main sequence. It, it evolves to the right-hand side of the HR diagram. It gets cooler and brighter. It becomes a red giant. Now, this process of climbing the red giant branch occurs fairly slowly. The time scale relevant to this is the Kelvin-Helmholtz time scale for the core plus the fact that it's getting additional energy from hydrogen fusion slows that down a bit. As you can compute what that should be for a star of about the mass of the sun, it takes about one billion years to traverse the HR diagram up to the top of the giant branch. As it does the traversal, the helium core is collapsing under its own weight and heating up. It's extracting energy via Kelvin-Helmholtz, but it's not enough to make up for the pressure for the energy losses, so the pressure never balances gravity. But it's still not hot enough for fusion. It's getting hotter. It's all way hotter than it was before, but it's not hot enough yet. Hydrogen burning is going on in a shell around that core. Hydrogen is still making helium. The helium is raining down on the core, increasing the mass of that core slowly. And we end up with a huge puffy envelope that swells up to about 0.7 astronomical units in radius. For those of you keeping score from 161, the sun, when it reaches this phase, will swell up almost to the size to fill the orbit of Venus. So we go from the nice compact sun, it will swell up to now where the size scale I should be talking about is astronomical units rather than kilometers. Now when it reaches the top of the red giant branch, the core has been getting progressively hotter and hotter and hotter. Eventually that temperature reaches 100 million degrees. When it reaches 100 million degrees, the temperature is now hot enough that two helium nuclei can be shoved together fast enough to begin to fuse. And so at 100 million degrees Kelvin, I ignite helium fusion. But because the helium fusion occurs very rapidly and onset is very rapidly, we call this the helium flash. Because all of a sudden the star is sitting there getting its energy from Kelvin Helmholtz and all of a sudden it says, wow, I can burn all my helium now. And it starts doing so very, very rapidly. Now we don't see the star go flash at all because all of it is buried deep in the interior of the star. It's deep inside that envelope. So we don't see, per se, an external phenomenon corresponding to the helium flash, except a little bit later, because that helium flash is showing us that the star is about to change its configuration, because now it has a new source of energy to tap. The helium flash is the onset of what's called the triple alpha process. Oh dear, that got turned into an A. That should be an al Greek alpha up there. 
this triple alpha. The reason why it's called the triple alpha process is that early in the 20th century, before people understood what radioactivity was all about, they divided radioactivity into three types, alpha rays, beta rays, and gamma rays. Gamma rays turned out to be high-energy photons, beta rays turned out to be high-energy electrons, and alpha particles turned out to be helium nuclei. So it gets termed by scientists the triple alpha process, or triple helium, if you want. It's the fusion of not two, but three helium nuclei to form a nucleus of carbon. In fact, carbon-12. It's a two-stage process. Helium plus helium forms a nucleus with four protons. That'll be beryllium over here. Beryllium-8 plus a photon, because the mass of beryllium-8 is less than the combined mass of the two helium going in. The problem is that this beryllium here is actually kind of unstable. It would break apart into two helium, except that in the high density and temperatures occurring in these stars, before the beryllium can break apart, a third helium collides with it, forming carbon-12 plus a photon. Again, because the mass of carbon-12 is less than the combined mass of beryllium-8 and helium-4. So I derive energy from this process, but the mass difference is now a lot smaller overall than the mass difference that I had between hydrogen and helium, so I don't get as much energy per nuclear reaction out of this as I did before. The efficiency is smaller. So from the point of view of the stars is cars analogy from yesterday, I've gone from putting jet fuel in my tank to the cheapo, cheapest grade of the Quickie Mart gas I can get my hands on. Now there's a secondary reaction going on here, and that is with the carbon-12. It's actually hot enough for that carbon-12 to actually pick up a helium-4 and form some oxygen, because the mass of an oxygen-16 is less than the combined mass of helium and carbon. I get a little bit of extra energy out from E equals mc squared as additional energy. This reaction is very important to us because it doesn't occur because it's a natural fusion temperature for carbon into oxygen. It occurs because there happens to be a very an interesting resonance in the energy levels of the interior of the carbon nucleus that allows this reaction to occur at a lower temperature than it normally would if that resonance was not present. This is actually very important to us because if that resonance was not present in the carbon nucleus, no further fusion would occur in any kind of star. It actually opens up a gateway into higher, higher mass nuclear fusion later on. So the result of triple alpha process is it produces two byproducts. Okay? First of all, it produces energy, which is important because it goes into heating the star, although it does not produce as much per gram of fuel that I had before in hydrogen fusion, which is the most efficient fusion that I have. And it produces two residues, carbon and oxygen. Remember what the most abundant elements in the universe are. Hydrogen, helium, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. So there's two of them, carbon and oxygen. The nitrogen, it turns out, from the universe comes out of the CNO bicycle. So we've already explained the most abundant elements in the universe with the earliest phases of nuclear fusion. Now, once I start burning helium, now we're going to use the term burning to mean fusion here, not oxidation by burning in chemistry. This is the sort of a convention astronomers have. Helium burning, once it ignites, is in the core. This means I now have a hydrostatic thermostat, just like I did when I had hydrogen fusion in the core in a main sequence star. I can now derive all of my energy needs from that helium fusion, and I can transport it out to the surface to achieve thermal equilibrium. I get a little additional help from the fact that there's hydrogen burning in a shell, but most of my energy is coming from helium burning.
So the star will actually now say, oh look, I'm no longer falling out of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium because I now have a source of energy I can tap to make up my energy needs. I regain thermal equilibrium and as a consequence I regain hydrostatic equilibrium. Now I don't go back to the main sequence because I'm getting my energy from helium fusion instead of hydrogen fusion and I've changed the interior configuration of the star. So what happens is the star readjusts itself to its brand new energy configuration. It reachieves hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium on a very fast time scale. It's the Kelvin-Helmholtz time scale here. And it gets hotter and bluer. It actually evolves back to the left. It's now getting energy out. It can contract. It can settle down. It shrinks in radius as it recovers hydrostatic equilibrium. And it gets a little fainter as a consequence because it doesn't have as much surface area even though it's gotten a little bit hotter. The star moves on to a place in the Erzsprung-Russell diagram we call the horizontal branch. It's going to be called that because it's going to be at a high, hot, and blue. It's fairly luminous. It's more luminous than it was before, but it actually runs horizontally across the HR diagram. Inside of a horizontal branch star, I have a helium-burning core surrounded by a very thin hydrogen-burning shell. Nearly all the energy is coming from the helium-burning core, a little bit extra from the hydrogen shell, that extra bit of energy keeps it puffed up a little bit more and makes it a little bit hotter than it was as a red giant, and I get a sort of a blue envelope. It's shrunk back down. It's settled into hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. Its inner readjustment is calmed down now that it's found a new fuel source. On the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, previously we're up here at the top of the red giant branch. The helium flash occurs, and then once the helium flash occurs, Helium core burning begins, and the star very quickly evolves down here. It doesn't make it all the way back to the main sequence. It doesn't go back to where it started from, because it's now going to be a little bit brighter and a little bit bluer than it was before, because its internal structure has rearranged itself for the double burning, helium core burning plus hydrogen shell burning, and all the other changes that have occurred in configuration. So it's now a very different object than it was down here, but it's still in hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. We call this a horizontal branch star because stars of different masses are going to end up along a branch approximately like this in this gap between the main sequence and the giant branch. Why didn't we see a lot of stars in there before? Because this phase doesn't last very long. The internal structure is very simple. Again, it's a hydrogen-burning core surrounded by a hydrogen-burning shell. The triple alpha process, however, is very, very inefficient. Like I said, it goes like from burning jet fuel to burning the cheapest gas you can buy. Whereas jet fuel could last you 10 billion years, hydrogen fusion could last you 10 billion years, even though you've got all that fusion, all that helium you built up over 10 billion years of fusion, it's in round numbers about 1% the efficiency of hydrogen fuel. So as a consequence, instead of burning for 10 billion years, you can only burn for a hundredth of that or about 100 million years. You have to fuse faster and faster to make up your energy losses. And remember, to achieve thermal equilibrium, you've got to generate energy fast enough to make up for every single erg being lost to photons from your surface of starlight. You're now brighter than you used to be. You're hotter than you used to be. You've got to work harder to make it up for that. You put cheap gas in, you're going to burn through it a whole lot faster than you are the good stuff. Now, this means that as you're going through high helium fusion, you're producing a lot of carbon and oxygen. You're replacing the helium with carbon and oxygen. 
the carbon and oxygen begins to build up. It's an ash. Because the burning is going more furiously, the carbon-oxygen core builds up very rapidly, but it's still too cold in the core. It may be 100, 120, 150 million degrees Kelvin, but that's nowhere near hot enough for the next level of fusion to begin. Carbon and oxygen does not become a fusion fuel for a much higher temperature. I'll just tell you the number now. It's 600 million degrees Kelvin. Because those carbons are just a whole lot bigger, they've got to be moving a whole lot faster for carbon-carbon fusion to kick in. And it just won't happen until it's 600 million degrees. So as a consequence, you're back to where you started again. You cleared out the, the fireplace. You're now burning the helium logs, but the helium logs are building up an ash of carbon and oxygen. To burn more helium, you've got to put the logs on top of the pile of ash. And because you burn it up so fast, each log basically burns in one second instead of 100, you're going to be feeding it logs at a really fast rate until finally there's no more room in the fireplace. After 100 million years, the helium just gets shoved out by all of that carbon and oxygen ash building up in the core. And we see exactly what we saw at hydrogen exhaustion occur, recapitulated again, now when helium exhaustion occurs. The carbon-oxygen core builds up and builds up until finally it gets enough self-gravity that it can no longer hold itself up against the, its own gravity. Hydrostatic equilibrium gets relaxed and the core begins to collapse. As the core begins to collapse, it begins to heat up and heat up its surroundings. It shoulders the helium burning out into a shell and the hydrogen burning shell moves out beyond that. I now have a core out of hydrostatic equilibrium, and I have this hot bottom helium and hydrogen burning going on. The helium and hydrogen burning gets accelerated by the additional Kelvin-Helmholtz heating. It begins to make more energy than it can possibly radiate, and the star gets out of both hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. That extra energy gets punched into the envelope, and the star begins to swell up. It swells up and cools, just like it did when it climbed the giant branch the first time. However, this time, because it's climbing the giant branch with a double burning shell and a carbon-oxygen core, and it's starting from a hotter, brighter place, it's starting from the horizontal branch instead of from the main sequence, this second giant branch is a little bit hotter than the original giant branch. And since it kind of approaches it, but doesn't quite touch it, those of you math fans in the audience, it's called the asymptotic giant branch because it sort of seems to sneak up on it from the high temperature end, but it never quite reaches it. And so the star gets, remember when it ran out of hydrogen, it became a red giant. It then found helium burning, became a horizontal branch star. Once it burns helium, it, becomes an, an, it sits on the horizontal branch. Once it runs out of helium in the core, it loses thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium and climbs the giant branch a second time but now a little bit to higher temperature called the asymptotic giant branch. So if we sliced open an asymptotic giant branch star, again, not to scale, we have an inert carbon-oxygen core. It's just a, basically a big ash pile. It's slowly collapsing under its own weight because its internal pressure cannot hold off gravity. And this is now out of hydrostatic equilibrium. Outside of that is a helium burning shell, outside of which is a hydrogen burning shell, and beyond that is this huge, cool envelope. The additional heating from Kelvin-Helmholtz in the core runs the fusion faster. It makes more energy than it can generate. And so I'm out of hydrostatic equilibrium. I've got pressure winning in the, in the envelope and gravity winning in the core. 
and I'm making more energy than I can radiate, so I'm out of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, the star becomes dynamic. It begins expanding and cooling and getting brighter on the outside while it's collapsing and heating and getting hotter on the inside. So the inside rearrangement of its structure is reflected by external phenomenon of cooling and swelling and getting brighter. So on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, we started out hydrogen core exhaustion up the giant branch onto the horizontal branch. We run out of helium and zip. We start climbing up the asymptotic giant branch. Well, at this point, you sort of think that the story of the star is just going to basically start repeating itself. The carbon-oxygen core is getting hotter and hotter, and eventually it's going to ignite carbon, right? Wrong. This time, the star is on a terminal track. There's a couple things that happen that sort of get in the way of the core ever getting hot enough to burn into carbon into higher elements to make extra heat. The star is kind of getting to be old age now. If we look at the triple alpha infusion rate, we saw yesterday the proton-proton chain runs about temperature to the fourth power. The CNO cycle runs about temperature to the 16th power, or 16th, 18th power, excuse me. Actually, it's temperature to the 17th power or something like that. Actually, 16.7, something really bizarre. The triple alpha rate runs with a temperature sensitivity like temperature to the 40th power. That means a 1% change in temperature makes a 40% change in the total power output. So it's extremely sensitive to temperature. The consequences of this is that tiny, tiny changes, tiny, tiny fluctuations in the temperature in that helium shell lead to tremendous changes in the amount of helium fusion you get, leading to a tremendous big changes in energy output. Well, this is kind of a problem. You're out of thermal equilibrium. You're already making more energy than you can get rid of. So that extra energy is going into making your shell puffy. And then for whatever reason, all of a sudden you get suddenly a little fluctuation. So you suddenly get a little hotter in the helium shell and the fusion goes nuts for a while. And it dumps a huge amount of energy that the star can't get rid of. What happens to it? Well, what you get is when that little twitch in temperature comes on, gets magnified by the extreme temperature sensitivity of triple alpha, and it sends a thermal pulse blasting through the star. That thermal pulse dumps a lot of heat into the envelope. The envelope can't radiate it away, so it turns into pressure. And what happens is the envelope, which normally was just slowly responding, suddenly is getting hammered from below over and over again with these thermal pulses that hit it every 10,000 years. That hammering starts to drive oscillations in the outer part of the star and eventually begins to drive off the matter in the envelope. So these thermal pulses begin to destabilize the outer parts of the envelope because it's thin and fluffy and it's getting hammered from below by the thermal pulses coming out of the unstable helium burning shell. It's really touchy. It's a house of cards. This is a very rapid process. It occurs over approximately 100,000 years. We've gone from 10 billion years on the main sequence to a billion years to climb the giant branch to 100 million years to sit on the horizontal branch, something less than 10 million years to climb the asymptotic giant branch. When I get close to the top of the asymptotic giant branch, now the time scale is 100,000 years. <coughs> In this rapid process, the outer envelope begins to be ejected from the star. 
it isn't going to be explosive. It's not a blast wave coming off, but it's kind of a fast wind. Basically, the outer envelope of the star is driven from below by these thermal pulses, and begins, the star begins to shrug off extra mass. Well, as you shrug off the extra mass, there's less weight of the star pushing down on the core, so you get less consequent heating. The carbon-oxygen core is continuing to be unstable. It's continuing to contract. It's still hydrostatically unsta- out of hydrostatic balance. But with less of envelope above you, the carbon-oxygen core cannot heat up as much as it would if that envelope had stayed on. And so what happens is the core is trying to heat, but part of its compression heating is being pulled off by the instabilities of the shell, so it never reaches 600 million Kelvin. It never reaches carbon fusion ignition temperature. So the star is now out of fusion energy. Except for the thin shells of helium and hydrogen fusion, it will never again fuse light elements into heavy elements in its core. We're now on the terminal track to the end of its life. At this point, the core and envelope, which have been together since formation, begin to physically separate. The envelope is steadily driven off by the thermal pulsations. It's pushed out of hydrostatic equilibrium so strong that in the envelope, pressure wins, and the gas is literally escaped from the star, and gravity loses the envelope. But the core, the balance is the other way. The gravity of the core is too big for pressure. No fusion reaction can come into play that will give you that extra heat to regain hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium. So the core falls down, and the envelope is blown away. We literally peel the envelope off the star, very slowly, over the course of about 100,000 years. This phase is when the star, which was an old, wrinkled, old, bloated star, actually becomes one of the most beautiful objects in the universe. It actually sort of flowers in this last sentence of time as it was called a planetary nebula. The expanding envelope doesn't just vanish quietly into space. As it gets thinner, it's sitting there expanding into space out to the sides of the solar system and beyond, and inside of it, that carbon-oxygen core is slowly revealed. Now it's no longer shrouded by the gases. This hot 100, 200,000 degree outer portion of the shell pumps out tons of ultraviolet radiation. That ultraviolet radiation ionizes the surrounding gas and heats it, and all of a sudden that gas, which was simply cold and blowing away, lights up in the sky. It becomes powered out, and within 10,000 years, it simply vanishes like a smoke ring into space. But in that 10,000 years, it becomes something called a planetary nebula. The hot carbon-oxygen core is slowly exposed and begins to evolve to the left on the HR diagram. You get this tiny little thing that's really, really hot. Starts out at a half million degrees, drops down to about 200,000 degrees. It's energy powering this planetary nebula. So in the planetary nebula phase, you reach the top of the asymptotic giant branch, Unstable pulsations eject the envelope. You reveal the hot carbon-oxygen core. The carbon-oxygen core is tiny. No sources of energy. It begins to cool, and it runs its way down here towards the white dwarf sequence. This is what the outer envelope of the star, this is probably about a two-solar mass star, a bright carbon-oxygen core just starting to be revealed, and the outer envelope being blown off, lighting up as this unbelievably beautiful nebula. This is an amazing zoo of objects. These are some of the most beautiful things in the universe, in my opinion. 
All these colors are approximately real. This is what happens when you ionize and fluoresce the hydrogen, the helium, the stuff out in the envelope. The way in which the gases come off, do they come off as a simple sphere shrugging off or maybe some rotation and winds it blows off in an hourglass shape? Maybe there's a binary down here and that influences the rate of this blow off. We really don't know really what is necessary to sculpt some of these things. Here's the ring nebula. It's actually a beautiful nebula you can see up in the constellation of, of Lyra. That little tiny blue star I'm sort of circling with my laser pointer there is producing enough energy to cause this thing to light up and just expand away. We actually can see these things are even bigger. On the ring nebula, there's a nebula about this big, given the big circle I'm drawing with the laser pointer, which is the first thermal pulse. We can actually see the layering of the different thermal pulses lit up by the light from the planetary nebula. That's how we have some confidence that this process is actually occurring. Yes, ma'am. The different colors in each of these things is caused by which elements are actually the dominant element producing emission lines. This is a hot, thin gas. If I looked at it with a spectrograph, I would see a bright emission line spectrum. So just like the different spectral lamps have different colors, like neon is different color from mercury, at different temperature and excitation conditions, if red is dominant, that means hydrogen emission lines are strong. Green regions are regions where oxygen emission lines are strong, and so on and so forth. It's just an accident of the excitation temperature. The fine structure has to do with whether they come off smoothly or whether they shatter on their way out. Now, the nebula just puffs away into space, but that leftover core probably contains between 0.6 and 0.8 the mass of the sun. The contracting core is so dense that, that it's sitting there getting compressing, getting hotter, compressing, getting hotter, and you'd think eventually, hey, wait a minute, maybe compression will be enough to cause the core to actually reach 600 million. Why doesn't it just keep getting hotter? And the answer, because it keeps getting hotter in the, previously because it was following the ideal gas law. But when matter gets so compressed that the electrons start bouncing off each other a lot, nature changes the rules. It changes from the ideal gas law to a brand new gas law that behaves different. What it behaves as is something called a degenerate electron gas. Now we'll say more about what degenerate electron gas is next week when we talk about white dwarfs in detail. But to give you the basic bottom line, in a degenerate electron gas, the pressure is independent of temperature. In an ideal gas, pressure is directly proportional to temperature. In a degenerate gas law, the pressure doesn't care what the temperature is. It only cares what the density is. And so what we get is a pressure law that's independent of the amount of heating. And so it begins to slowly build up as gas pressure is replaced by electron degeneracy pressure. And because the electron degeneracy pressure depends upon the density to some high power, eventually the pressure rises to the point that it balances gravity. And the collapse stops. The star regains hydrostatic equilibrium at about the size of the Earth. One hundredth of a solar radius or about the radius of the Earth. It's now in hydrostatic equilibrium without the requirement of being in thermal equilibrium because it no longer needs to make up heat to keep its pressure up because pressure doesn't care what the temperature is when you're in electron degenerate gas. And the compression stops. We call this object, it's very, very hot, it's white hot, but it's tiny. It's the size of the Earth. So it's called a white dwarf. And this is what white dwarf stars are. They are the remnant carbon-oxygen cores of what used to be low-mass main sequence stars that have long since borne off their envelope. 
So in summary, the main stages of a low-mass star's life is main sequence, which is when it has hydrogen burning in a core, red giant, when the hydrogen burning has been shoved into a shell, horizontal branch, when it has helium core plus hydrogen shell burning, asymptotic giant branch, when it's double shell burning, helium shell and hydrogen shell, finally the planetary nebula puffs off the em as an envelope, and the white dwarf has no energy source. And we'll meet these next week as to how they evolve. No, because that nebula will um, very quickly uh, dissipate after about 10,000 years. Oh, really? okay. And so when the nebula is gone, 